AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 23, the Massachusetts Circular Letter. Tensions between the Crown and the colonies, and particularly the colony of Massachusetts, had been building for years prior to 1768. But with Boston viewed by many in the British government as the very hotbed of colonial agitation, the Massachusetts Circular Letter would set in motion the events that ultimately led to the bloodshed of the Boston Massacre. The repeal of the Stamp Act in 1766 was mistakenly taken as a sign by some in the colonies that Parliament and the Crown had learned its lesson about unjust taxation. In reality, all the British government was doing was redefining and refining its methods on how to extract revenue from the colonies. Looks somewhat tame, as the Stamp Act was merely to tax printed materials, whereas the Townsend Acts did that and put an import duty on glass, paint, lead, and tea as well as created an American Board of Customs, with customs agents meant to enforce the duties. In response to the Townsend Acts, the Massachusetts General Court, or what we now know as the state legislature, issued the Massachusetts Circular Letter in February of 1768. And as the term circular implies, the letter was meant to have wide distribution, not only in Massachusetts, but across the colonies. The letter would be sent to the various state assemblies, ultimately receiving positive responses from New Jersey, Connecticut, and Virginia. The letter was drafted by none other than Sam Adams, who began the letter with some fundamental truths. It is an essential unalterable right in nature and grafted into the British Constitution as a fundamental law and ever held sacred and irrevocable by the subjects within the realm that what a man has honestly acquired is absolutely his own, which he may freely give, but cannot be taken from him without his consent, that the American subjects assert this natural and constitutional right. Adams went on to write that the duties imposed by the Townsend Acts were infringements upon the natural and constitutional rights of the American colonists. Adams would call into question the very idea that Parliament somehow represented the colonies at all, since an ocean of a thousand leagues separated them. He argued for an American legislature, essentially the ones already in place with the state legislatures, that were elected by American colonists and could be truly said to represent the people. The legislatures, subordinate to Parliament, already taxed those they represented. The letter, written in respectful but forceful language, went over with the British government like a turd in a punch bowl, or a skunk in the pristine British Rose Garden which is to say it went over very, very badly. The response, which I've somewhat paraphrased here, was, how dare those damned, dirty, unwashed provincials lecture us on the right to do anything? We're the damned crown in Parliament, and we'll do whatever we deem right, and those wretches will do what we want, when we want, and they'll like it. To say the circular letter ruffled feathers would be an understatement. Lord Hillsborough, the Secretary of State for the American Colonies, was none too pleased with the Massachusetts Circular Letter and responded to it with one of his own the third week of April 1768. In the letter, Hillsborough forbade any legislature to endorse the Massachusetts Circular Letter, and he ordered Massachusetts to repudiate it. He also directed every royal governor to dissolve any legislature disobeying his instructions. 
Now, with all of this happening, a gentleman by the name of John Hancock decided to sail his sloop, the Liberty, into Boston Harbor the beginning of June with 25 pipes of Madeira wine aboard, or roughly 3,100 gallons of wine. Hancock was already, to quote some history accounts, cordially hated by officers of the Crown. In April of that year, customs officials had boarded another one of his ships, the Lydia, but were forcibly removed by Hancock's crew because they lacked writs of assistance. Hancock was arrested, only to be proven right because the officials did not, in fact, have the right paperwork. Though he escaped any legal proceedings, the customs officials decided they did not care for this John Hancock fellow who had defied them. What he did that June night only increased their hatred of him. The British had long suspected Hancock as a smuggler, and Hancock was determined to evade their rather onerous tax burdens. So when the representatives of the Crown came aboard the Liberty that night to observe the unloading of the ship's hold to see what was taxable, Hancock and his crew promptly nailed the door to the cabin, shut, so that the official sitting inside was unable to come out and see what was being unloaded. And so they unloaded the wine without it entering the customs house. Of course, none of this behavior sat well with the British at all. They then seized the ship the next morning, albeit there was no wine aboard now. One of the British customs officials was determined to tow the Liberty and anchor her right beneath the 60 guns of the British man of war, the Romney. But word had gotten out of Hancock's exploits and the British response to it. And while the rowboats were coming to tow the Liberty away, a mob assembled. The leader of the mob, a man by the name of Malcolm, informed the British officials that they'd better leave the ship where it was. The British official, determined to tow the Liberty, essentially said, No, damn you, we will tow the boat away. The crowd, none too pleased with this response, began crowding and shouting the British official. The captain of the Romney, now present with Marines, informed the crowd that he'd split the skull of any Bostonian who dared to stop them, then shouted at the Marines to fire on the crowd. The British, with the mob under the muskets of the Marines, who thankfully did not fire, cut the moorings of the Liberty and towed her away. The mob, furious now, followed the customs officials back to their offices. Of course, why the customs officials didn't just go with the Marines is beyond me, pelting them with stones and anything else they could lay their hands on. Back at their offices, the customs officials ducked inside for cover, and the Bostonians proceeded to shatter the windows of their offices, then grabbed a smaller boat of the collectors out of the harbor, drug it down to the Boston Commons, and then promptly burned it. Then, figuring they'd done all they could for one day, the mob dispersed. As to be expected, the customs officers were by this time terrified for their very lives, and informed Governor Bernard that they needed protection. He replied he really couldn't offer them much, so the officials then did the smart thing and beat a hasty retreat to the Romney, and then to Castle William, where a company of British artillery was stationed. On June 13th, several days after the seizure of the Liberty, James Otis and citizen leaders went to Bernard, demanding that the Romney leave the harbor and that the customs officials be reined in. Bernard, who by this time was desperately trying to get British troops from New York to come to Boston to help police the increasingly out-of-control Boston population, replied that he would stop the impressments of American colonists onto British ships, one of the grievances that had been brought by Otis and other leaders, but that was about it. Roughly a week later, Bernard showed Hillsborough's instructions regarding the circular letter, and on June 21st, Bernard delivered the message to the Massachusetts legislature. His words, it's recorded, were met with moderation, but firmness. 
James Otis and Sam Adams responded to Bernard on behalf of the assembly. Bernard and the others described Otis's response as violent, insolent, abusive, and one of the most treasonable declarations that was ever delivered. Otis summed up his response by literally shouting, when Lord Hillsborough knows that we will not rescind our acts, he should apply to Parliament to rescind theirs. Let Britons rescind their measures, or they are lost forever. In very much a kiss-it act of defiance, the Massachusetts General Court voted 92-17 to 17 against revoking their circular letter, defying Hillsborough and the Crown. Several days later, Bernard informed the members of the General Court that it was dissolved immediately. Representatives of the Crown in Boston began reporting back to Lord Hillsborough that Boston was in a state of anarchy, and it was growing worse. With the agitation and unrest growing in Boston, Lord Hillsborough decided that it was time to crack down and ordered 4,000 troops and a 50-gun warship to Boston. Now, imagine you are a citizen of Boston, and you see 4,000 redcoats sail into the harbor. While the gunship anchors in the harbor, covering the town with its cannons, the soldiers disembark and march right on down to the Boston Commons, where they set up a large military camp right in the heart of the city. It's a not-so-subtle reminder on the order of things. England was the boss, and the colonies had better get used to it, and they better like it as they were getting used to it. Now, at that time, Boston had roughly 20,000 citizens. I assume that is men, women, and children. Even if you included men, women, and children, that's one soldier for every five citizens in Boston. If you equate it to adult males living in Boston at the time, the figure is probably more like one soldier for every two to three adult males. When seen in this light, you realize the magnitude of the crackdown. The people of Boston, of Massachusetts, would fall into line with what the Crown wanted, or they would live in a perpetual police state. The arrival of British troops and their stationing in Boston in the midst of an already agitated populace almost made the Boston Massacre just over two years later inevitable. It was becoming more and more clear to the colonists and to men like Sam Adams and others that if they were going to be truly free from, with all of their God-given rights in place, they were going to have to fight for them. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan, Eric Josephson, and Michael Brooks and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. American Majority.